It was the summer before I went to rabbinical school. I was sitting in the garden of my parents' summer house on the Jersey Shore with my then boyfriend. I was about 28, and we were studying Torah. And I was upset by what we were studying. It was kind of demeaning to women, and I expressed my sorrow, and he got angry at me. He felt like the Torah is perfect as it is. And while on some level, I feel like this book is divinely inspired, I can't sort of look away from its patriarchal nature, from its violence, from its occasional xenophobia, as much as I confess I would like to. And sometimes as a teacher, I turn away from just those texts and I teach the ones that are a little bit easier to handle and a little bit just like plainly inspiring. But tonight I felt like I really can't hide from this because it hits us right at the beginning of the Parsha. It's a discussion or the issue, the topic is, are, is vows and oaths. So the, the Parsha opens and tells us that any man who vows a vow to Yudhe to God, who swears a sworn oath to bind himself by a binding obligation, he is not to desecrate his word. Exactly what goes out of his mouth, he is to do. Lo yachel dvaro, kechol That's the one line about men. And now the Torah goes into many verses about women, and it turns out it's much more complicated. But before we get to that, I just want to explain that what a vow is in the Torah, a neder, is when I say to God, let's say, if this happens, then I will stop eating that, right? So I kind of consecrate or uh, refrain from taking part of some food or some object. The perfect example in the Torah is Hannah or Hannah in Samuel 1.1, who says to God, if you give me a male child, I will devote him or dedicate him to God for the rest of his days. And she does have a male child and she gives him up to God. An oath in comparison affects the person, not the object. An oath is a promise to do or not to do something or claim that a statement is true or false. Okay, so now on to women and vows. If a young woman is living at home with her father and he hears her say this vow, if he is silent, the vow kind of sticks, right? It, it's, it's fulfilled. But if he, on the day that he hears it, and only on that day, says, no, I don't think that's a good idea, he has the power to annul it. If he doesn't annul it on that first day, it's okay. Now you would think like, oh, maybe it's because she's young, but the Torah says nothing about a young man. So I can't, I won't, you know, I don't think that it's only because she's young. And it turns out that a married woman has the same situation. So if a married woman makes a vow and her husband hears it, if he decides not to say anything, it's okay, the vow is fulfilled. 
but he can annul it on the day that he hears it. Now it's interesting because the status of divorced women and widowed is different. They are the only women who can make a vow and it's fulfilled, right? No one can abrogate their vow. It cannot be annulled. So what are we supposed to do with this, right? So here we have a text. This is our sacred text, right? And women can't freely commit to God, right? They can't freely, or most women cannot freely commit to God, right? So it's, it's kind of upsetting, right? How do we live from this? So I often say to my students, that the Torah is not the end of the conversation, it's the beginning of the conversation. So yes, there's ugly stuff in the Torah, but the tradition continues and evolves. So let's see what happens on our own Parsha. At the end of the Parsha, well, actually, first, let's go back to last week for a moment. Last week, we talked about the five sisters, the daughters of Slavkad, the women, the young, I imagine young women, right? The five young women whose father died and there were no brothers and they wanted to inherit the, the family land. So when they put this request before all the people, God said, yes, they are speaking rightly. Like Moses was silent, did not, not know what to do, but God said, yes, they can inherit the land. Wonderful, right? Great text that we could perhaps hold up for feminist uses, right? At the end of this Parsha, the leaders of the tribe of Menasha, the same tribe as the daughters of Slavkad, get up and say, huh, if they marry outside the tribe, our tribe is going to lose its land. That's not so good, right? They didn't like that. So God says, yes, they also speak rightly. It's the same words. And it's interesting because in each of their um, their pleas before God, they use the same word, yigara, we don't want to be diminished. The women say, we don't want our father's name to be diminished. And the men said, we don't want our holdings to be diminished, right? So God says, yes, the women have to marry within the tribe. Now you would think, hmm, this is disappointing. And it is kind of disappointing because last week, the daughters of Slavka, they got up, they got exactly what they were looking for. And this week they're constrained. But if we look at it from a different angle, we might see it in a little bit of a different light. Um, last week, right, these women without any status got up and God said, yes, you're right. And the whole legal system shifted because of them. Now this week, these powerful male leaders, right, from the tribe of Manasseh get up and God says the same thing. The legal system will shift because of you, right? So these women state their need and something changes. These men state their need and something changes. And what happens here at the end of the book of the number of numbers, I think is that the human voice is being raised up and that our oral tradition, it's kind of laying the seeds for our oral tradition, because think about it. Four books of the Bible are taught, are told, are, 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 are narrated through an omniscient narrator. But the fifth book, the book of Dvarim, the book of Deuteronomy, it's all in the voice of Moshe. 
right, which paves the way for what will ultimately become an oral human tradition, right? We have the human, we have the written tradition and the oral tradition. And the daughters of Slavkad begin, and then the leaders of Menashe continue. And then we have a fifth book in a human voice. Now, I'm not saying that these ideas make the patriarchy go away, but perhaps the mechanism here, right? The mechanism is established in Torah for human, human voices and human needs to be heard. And that paves the way for eventual egalitarianism, eventual, right? It takes years and years and years. And meanwhile, we're studying this book, which is a combination of redemption, inspiration, right? Early sort of hints of liberation and this other stuff, which we might find oppressive. But I will say to you, and I will say to my boyfriend then, who I don't really know anymore, but I hear of him, he's become a very successful architect in Israel, um, that reckoning with this book gives it even more holiness, right? There's something about reckoning and struggling and adding your voice to the conversation that really raises it up. Now, here we are, it's the nine days, right? The nine days of Av where we, on the way to Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av next Saturday night, where we mourn the destruction of the temples and countless other tragedies in Jewish history. But it's a really sad time. And in our own world, right, many of us face like we are also facing destruction. So what do we have to hold on to? What do we have? And I would say we have this legacy. We have this book. We have this tradition of human voices, first God's voice, and then human voices multiplying and sanctified, and a book that invites us right into the conversation. So let's hold on to it because these times are really hard and we need instruction and we need inspiration and we need guidance more than what we're hearing right on social media and, and you know in the news. We need voices from another time. We need all these generations of voices to help us through these times. Shabbat Shalom.